You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and we are over the halfway hump of the month here. We just rolled through. Hope you guys have a wonderful fourth. Uh, I'm, I'm saying this uh, kind of pretense as I'm recording this, uh, this intro. It's right before our fourth holiday here. Um, I, uh, I, I said it last week and I'll say it again. I am really excited to be doing some scouting at uh, my cabin this weekend really looking forward to putting some boots on the ground looking at some cameras and i've just got uh the hunting bug is is really hitting me hard not that it never does but it's just amplified now um for whatever reason man i'm back on my bear kick um i'm I'm really hoping to uh to get out spend some time in uh the, the summer and fall months trying to just pin down locations and and have a successful bear season and of course i'm thinking about whitetails i'm thinking about food plots i'm really excited to put some food plots i got some work to do at my place i want to expand my food plot a little bit i uh, i want to get uh, get a loader in here another day and and clear some brush and kind of change the shape of the food plot and uh, get it planted i just planted uh, my screen finally we started getting rain i planted screening and i i did it in a no-till way and i think it's going to work pretty well i broadcast it into a cut into the the old fall cover crop that had rye and crimson clover and uh, i mowed the thatch over top of that and it kind of covered it up like mulch and it seems to be coming pretty well i'm gonna have to do a herbicide application but man let that rain keep coming um, I, I got stands to hang, more more trail camera work to do, you know, lanes to cut. There, there's there's plenty of work to be doing, but man, it's it's on my mind now. And as as I start to coast out a little bit with work, that's a little bit exciting to uh, to see some time free up, hopefully, and and get rocking and rolling on that. Uh, so yeah, really exciting times. But I must say, I am extremely excited to be bringing this episode this week to you guys. This one is a special one. So anybody who is an archer, interested in archery, um, the guest that we have on this week has an impact to your bow hunting life. Uh, This guest is somebody who was one of basically the founding fathers in a sense i guess you would say um of instituting the compound bow into our archery life the the machine that took over the archery industry and is basically now the norm across the world uh technology that revolutionized bow hunting revolutionized competition archery and uh it you know changed it forevermore and uh there's there's a lot of big names talked about in this episode and this person worked 
with side by side shot against uh, some some big names when they were uh, professional archer leading through uh, some of the names that you're going to hear him talk about uh, Tom Jennings Fred Bear Earl Hoyt Ben Pearson Pete Shepley and there's a host of other other names that were were either people that he worked with or had interactions with in the archery industry. And uh, believe it or not, folks, if you don't know who he is, he is a Pennsylvania native. He is from Boyertown, uh, lived in Sullivan County for a good duration of his life, but he also lived throughout the entire country for a duration of his life as he, he traveled and, and worked in the archery industry. And the, the person that I'm talking about and the person I had the privilege to have on the show is Sherwood Shock. And like I said, but before you listen to this episode, if you don't know who Sherwood is, get on your smartphones, your handy-dandy Google search engine, and just look him up. Look up all that he has done because the, the things he has done completely revolutionized the world we live in with archery. It was a really unique situation in how I connected with Sherwood. Um, it actually stems backwards. So uh, we've had... Uh, our, our, one of the guests we've had on the show in, in episodes past was Phil Holcomb. And Phil Holcomb was, uh, he's the, the president of the, uh, the Bow Hunters Festival up there in Forksville. And we had him on the show talking about that before. And uh, talking uh, off the air with, with Phil, he's like, you know, he gave me some suggestions of people that I should consider having on my show. And a long time ago, when I first started, he said, you should, uh, you should get to know, uh, I should connect you with Sherwood Shock. And uh, I completely forgot that Phil told me about that. Now, you fast forward to this winter, and I think I share this in the episode too, but uh, my dad went on a golfing trip with somebody who golfs with Sherwood on a regular on a fairly regular basis, uh, lives fairly local to where I, where I am here in southeastern Pennsylvania. And I was astounded and so thankful that Randy Hensinger, who uh, joined us on the show, uh, sat in and, uh, you know, followed along, asked some, some questions and kept the conversation going with us, um, introduced me to Sherwood. And I was so thankful that Sherwood was just so open to allow me to come over to his home and sit down and talk about his amazing career. And we, t- we talk about um, how he got started bow hunting, you know, where, where he came from, where his interests were, uh, went going into the Navy, coming out of the Navy, and finding himself in uh, an ed- editor of an archery magazine to shooting at a very, very high, the, the top level in competition archery, to networking with industry in- people and being one of the people, you know, side by side working with uh, Tom Jennings and developing the first compound bows. And the stories that are in here, uh, they're raw. And Sherwood, if you're listening to this, I apologize because I know you, you, you pleaded with me that I needed to edit as much as possible because you rambled too much. And I'm just sorry, but I listened through this and this, this stuff is too good. Uh, uh, everybody, everybody that listens to my show and, and the, the, the people that continually come to this, they want to hear this because I was just, you know, listening to it again. I was just so many things that just blow me away. And it, it, some of it is raw details and stuff like that, but it's, it's all good. And it's, it's all, uh, G rated and, uh, it's, 
it's just um, things that I don't think should be lost in any case with uh, <clears throat> where we've come and, and gone in, in the world of archery. And, uh, you know, you think about what bow hunting and compounds have done. I was, I was talking with Sherwood off the air, and the value of the compound bow t- changing the entire industry. Look, it changed bow hunting license sales. It increased the success ratios and expanded seasons. Um, it, it, just looking here, 15% of all retail archery equipment dollars are related to competitive ar- tournament archery. 85% of it relates to hunting. And that, that market is, uh, that's, that's where the market is, right? Uh, that's huge. That's huge. That's all from this uh, pioneer, you know, somebody who was, was right there with some of these uh, these other big names he's going to talk about. Uh, true, Truly astounding, a, a wonderful story, a legacy, and this is a long episode. And I had a long conversation, and, and we, we bounced from through his, out his career into telling stories. And the first part of this week's episode is going to be that journey, uh, the journey from... Uh, youth to navy to editor to shooting to create that compound bow and we're going to jump into some episodes in the in the coming week another episode in the upcoming weeks that's uh that's a little bit more um bounces all over the place and covers a, a host of different things relative to sherwood's life and career and archery hunting in the compound bow so let's dive into this episode and as always before we do we got to uh, got to make our shout out to the the folks that make this happen and that would be radix hunting uh radix cameras are out they're up and rolling and if you are looking to get cell cameras m core cell cameras or you're looking to get regular cameras the gen 600s uh they have image quality and everything that you need from a camera at a at a price that is really really hard to beat guys uh talking top end quality especially images and video, man. I, I am really blown away by the quality of them. And, uh, yeah, I don't think you can beat it. It's uh, it's gear we all use. Get the trail camera accessories that you need to. And uh, it's all found at RadixHunting.com. And with that, hey, let's get to this week's episode. Sherwood, thank you very much for, for having me. Um, I'm sitting here with Randy Hansinger and Sherwood Shock. We're uh, we're talking all about uh, Sherwood's really incredible uh, incredible story. You told me a little bit of stuff on the phone, uh, but uh, I'm kind of anxious to hear uh, more about your your archery hunting career. And it sounds like a pretty interesting career overall. So again, thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I, as far as hunting, as a boy, I started hunting when I was seven, eight years old because we lived in the mountain and. And it was early World War II, and so we hunted for meat to live. And we did it all year, and and, uh, that's the way it was. So I never gave up hunting, but I went through high school, continued to hunt, started to mess around with a bow that I was a homemade one that my dad and I made that wasn't really a bow, and I couldn't shoot anything with it, but I played with it. But I had the idea, and then I bought a bow, and the first year that there was a license in Pennsylvania for deer was 1951. For with, a, with a bow, you're saying? With a bow. Okay. Bow only, archery season. And it was for a week. And there was only two places you could hunt, Allegheny State Park or Hickory Run State Park. So I got a license with Hickory Run State Park. 
Okay. With a friend, Bob Brennan, an old man. We went up there bow hunting. So that was in 51, the first year. So then I joined the Navy in 50, got out of high school. Then I joined the Navy because I was facing a draft. And uh, I went in the Navy, but every year I took leave for bow season. Well, that's, that sounds like my kind of man. It sounds like something you and yeah. I would do too, Randy. Mm-hmm. And I, like I want to say also, my father was a, a a very a licensed trapper for the game commission. Okay. And so I became a part of that naturally. So as a young person, we had a lot of trap lines. My brother was a year younger than me, and myself, my dad, we had three trap lines. And we worked the trap lines every morning and every evening. And uh, so... I guess I just got to say I was 100% outdoors and could handle everything I need to do out in the woods. You know, I could survive out there. Sure. I mean, and, you started off at a young age like a lot of us, for sure. Yeah. I, the first deer I ever shot was I was, you hope a game commission ain't listening. I was 11 years old, and I was going on my trap line, and I told my dad, I said, every day I go up this trail, the one deer is up there cause around the log bush. I said, I, he, we had a 410 single barrel. And I had a, a rifle slug. With the old pumpkin balls in them? Yeah, it was pumpkin ball. A little short. Mm-hmm. At any rate, pops up, well, go ahead. Well, it so happened, he was getting ready to go to work, and it was just, it, now you got to know, when I was doing this, it wasn't daylight yet, but it was getting very close to daylight. Mm-hmm. So now I started up the mountain in the laurel, and there comes the doe sticks, and they head over the bush, and I was about from here to there, got it right there. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a, so it happened so quick. I went right back to the house and told Pop, oh, he got one. He said he thought I was kidding because I wasn't. I had three minutes since I left him. I had it. Yeah, that quick. So yeah, that was uh, so. That was just the start. The point is, I've been chasing him and doing it my whole life, and then I got really into archery and interested in that. But I never shot a bow with a never shot a deer until 1954 with a bow. Well, I, I definitely want to get to that, but I I think our introduction of, in how. Uh, this this uh, day came to fruition. Uh, Randy was uh, was on a golf trip with my dad, of all people, and you were you were telling us a little bit about some hunting stories back and forth, and uh, and you you connected me with with Sherwood. So Randy, thanks for being here and kind of sure. sitting down with us. Absolutely, yeah. It was uh, it was a nice discussion I had with your father about hunting, and then all of a sudden we started talking about what I do up in Albany Township, and I said to your father, I have this really wonderful friend that has this uh, great history in the archery world and knows a lot of people in the archery world is one of the founders of the uh, cross of the uh, compound bow and all of that which I'm sure Sherbert will tell you about and uh, so we connected up through that and it was uh, got a hold of you and here we are sitting today yeah that's 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 the kind of stuff I love it's amazing how a simple stick and string can bring people together like that. Yeah. That's that's my favorite thing about it, and outdoors in general. Because I mean, I think my best memories are the ones that you did with your your family and your friends and everything else. But no, this is great. So uh, you did a little bit more of a you know putting him up a little bit higher than his introduction that he gave himself. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to talk about it earlier. But you you've got quite the resume, Sherwood, and I, I kind of want to break that down a little bit. But you you were you were telling me a little bit about uh, taking off uh, taking off hunting. When you you said you were in the navy, yeah, and you were take you take off hunting. So, so tell me a little bit about that time when you were in the navy. Like, what did what did your outdoor experience look like, and and how did that lead towards going and you know getting more in depth with with archery? Well, 
the fact that it was, see, I did the archery before the Navy, but and hunting season came along, and I felt it was comp- I wanted to go hunting. And so when you get 30 days leave a year in the military, I did it at that time, and I would plan it so that I'd get my leave to come home to go bow hunting. And I did that. And uh, So at that time, what, what time of year was that? Because well, like right now, bow hunting is from October till January. That time... Well, it was a various age, but I, I can't. I want to be accurate, but I don't know if I can be because I can't remember exactly. Because we had a we had we had a one week, then we had a two week, then we had a three week, then we had a four week, and I can't remember just what. I know that eighty four. I mean, I shot my first deer with a bow and arrow in nineteen fifty four. Nineteen fifty four. I think it was a thirty day season at that time, but I made sure I took my leave from the Navy in time to fit into it. And I hunted in Potter County then and got a little doe. I got her. Mm-hmm. And so that was it. So I then during my time in the Navy, I didn't, I, sometimes I couldn't come home in the hunting season because of where I was at and I was in the Navy isn't necessarily parked at, you know, dry land all the time. And so... When I, in 1964, I got out of the Navy, okay? Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was looking for a job. And my secondary duty in the military, I was a inf- public information officer. And what is that? That's to release information when anybody accomplishes anything in the squadron and the thing. And writes a, we had a, a weekly newsletter that I was in charge of with a couple of kids and that sort of thing. So that was my only background in that. And I had a two-week official course in the Navy for public information officer duties. And based upon that, when I got out, I'm from Boyertown. Mm-hmm. I went to Boyertown. I had a very good friend there that was already shooting a bow and arrow a lot. And he was one of Papa Dick and Archers of Boyertown Club Championship. And he and I were always pretty competitive friends and everything. Right. But I basically said this. I said, Ronnie, anything you can do, I can do better. So I went and got a bow, mm-hmm. a, a real bow that I could shoot competition with. That was a 64. Well, tell me a little bit about that bow because I'm curious because the bows we're used to today are a little bit different. <laughs> okay. The first one I had was I had a friend by the name of Henry Fulmer that was already shooting also, and he had some bows, and he had a spare Black Widow recurve bow. I borrowed it from him. I didn't buy one immediately. Well, as Faye would have it, some things just are good for people, and spatial orientation seems to be my real strength because my spatial or far rating in the Navy stuff was way up. Well, that has to do with arrows and sight and seeing things. So shooting a bow and arrow by just plain aiming it and judging it came really fast and really easy. You're and saying like the natural instinctive shooting with a with a stick bow, you're saying? I shot, I shot a... Yes, I was shooting bare bow, no sight. Right. That's what they call it. And uh, I had a friend from the Reading Archery Club that was a good shooter, but I had been quickly catching up to him. And so he was signed up for the Pennsylvania State Championship in Fairmont Park in Philadelphia in late August in 1964. Now, I'd only started, I started shooting competition in March. Now I saw I signed up to go with him, and so I, and he had a form for any rate. We got down there, 
And after the first day, I was leading in my in the A division. Okay. And so Bernie, and we're driving home, and he's saying, well, it's going to be different tomorrow. You're going to be under pressure. I said, buddy, pressure is when you're low on gas and it's dark and you're trying to get on the ship. That's pressure. <laughs> and so uh, at any rate, I went down the next day and I won it. And that, that, and so, that was the first go around as far as competitive shooting that you were into. Ki- any kind of competition other than like a local club. Right. Uh, there used to be what they called a Southeast Archery Conference that in, uh, encompassed most of southeastern Pennsylvania. And Papa Dick and Archers was a Boyertown Archery Club, and they were in that league. And so every weekend we shot one club or another. Mm-hmm. So I had shot a lot. I shot every weekend from the time I started grabbing a hold of the bow, and I was quickly moving up the ladder. Right. And so in the local tournaments, and then I got to say then, well, in Papa Dick and Club Championship came up a month after the state. Well, I've been pretty sad if I didn't win that, but I did. <laughs> so, so what were you doing at that time during the, your, your weeks? You well, said you came back and you were looking for a job, but you were shooting on the weekends. What did that look like at that time out of the fate, Navy? Another thing that led me into archery. And uh, a guy that worked for Boyertown Publishing at the time, I'd gotten my picture in the paper a couple of times, and he's the one who came and told me. We were at the fire company having a beer on a Friday afternoon. He says, you know, we have an archery magazine that we print here, but the company's taking over the magazine, and they're looking for somebody to manage it. Interesting. And the, and the guy was in Norristown, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. that had it and wasn't paying his bills, so they claimed the magazine. I went and talked to Dunweb, the publisher, a Boyertown publisher, the owner of it, and talked to him. He said, well, I think I can use you. And what happened to be in my favor, it just so happened he was a military pilot. Okay. So I had an open door going in. And so he hired me. And I went to the magazine, and, and that was in all the while I was starting to learn to shoot. It was overlapping. Yeah. What, what was other. that magazine called? Well, at that time, it was called The Archer's Magazine, TAM, T-A-M. Okay. But it was a national magazine. It was the official publication of the National Archery Association, which was big. Mm-hmm. And all the amateur... Uh, national competition was published in our magazine okay. tam magazine and well, you said you were the, the primary editor then well i was initially i was to be hired in to be the assistant general manager mm-hmm. i kind of looking over everything and so i did that well it so happened the manager had a drinking problem and so he wasn't there a lot of times and it didn't take long to figure everybody figure out what was going to happen. He's going, and I was in. Mm. And I, I was going to help for that, but that's the way it went. So then I became general manager of this National Archery Magazine. And at the time, we were we our circulation was only about 30,000 because we weren't on newsstands or anything. The National Archery Association had a membership of several thousand, and that was the base of it. And then everybody else was interested, and we ran articles on anything having to do with archery, competition, hunting, bow hunting, mm-hmm. uh, development of equipment. And it was my responsibility, to, or anybody in that position, to satisfy advertisers. Mm-hmm. That's what pays the bill. Well, sure. Keeps it going. And so we had a uh, – I, I established an early quick rapport with the manager the manufacturers mm-hmm. and so well, i was getting the ads we needed and i and i was ambitious and i wanted to go on newsstand 
Well, that was a whole big jump to do that, and they wouldn't accept that name. So I renamed it Archery World and relogoed it and changed the copyright name on the thing, and we became Archery World Magazine. Okay. But we still did what we did before, but we expanded a little bit because I had come to know when you're in the printing business, like Boris and Publishing, there's a lot of art involved in that. Mm-hmm. So there were artists there doing other things. Well, I quickly moved in on them and said, you know, I want a logo for the magazine and do this. So pretty soon we had a nice looking thing set up and we adopted it and that was it. And uh, and so, and then I, because of the artist, one artist introduced me to an artist from Harrisburg who was a very good outdoor artist and did deer and hunting and he liked doing animals and stuff like that. So I got a hold of him and then he, he was interesting because he shot a bow and arrow too. And um, any rate, he helped me with the art on the covers because I didn't know how to do that. And but I had an idea of what I wanted there. Right. And I would talk to the the manufacturers who were putting ads in the thing, and I would do things that were complimentary to them. So if I had a picture of a bow in there, I wanted it to be identified mm-hmm. and so forth. And so that moved along well as the, as things would have it. Fred Bear, then Bear Archery Company, was a leading archery manufacturer in the in the world, and they were and Fred himself was very well known. Had done movies, was on TV and stuff. Well, I, their their marketing director at that time at Bear Archery Company was of a guy by the name of Bob Kelly, and Bob Kelly's a Navy man. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's uh, amazing was, how those connections yeah. just keep getting made along so, the way to the story. So I got to talking to Bob Kelly, and he says, and then what happened was he said, I want to talk to you. He was in Grayling, Michigan. That's where Bear was located, right. Grayling, Michigan. And so I said, well, I'll get up there sometime. Well, what happened in his conversation about a month later, a month and a half, along comes the NFA, National Field Archery Association, National Championship in Watkins Glen. Mm-hmm. So me and that guy up there, we went there, and we got that trophy sitting over there. Okay. So that was amateur bear bow, they call it. Okay. So, and this, and then Earl Hoyt, who made that bow, his company, he was also an advertiser. So I didn't personally know him until I met him at the Nationals, and... He was very cooperative and decent with me, but uh, a representative from Bear Archery Company was at that event, mm-hmm. happened to shoot in my division, and he saw what I was doing. And so when it was over, he says, I'd like to take you to Grayling Mission and fit a bow for you. So then we did that. And Week Deke Archery up here? Yes. Dick Weenie, the original, he went with us. Okay. That's where I bought my bow. So Dick and... Al Dawson was the rep, and myself went to Grayling, Michigan. And when I get up there, Bob Kelly and Kruber had another thought for me. They wanted to do some, they wanted to publish some books on Fred and his code, and they thought maybe I would do that. Well, as life would have it, I said, look, I'm not really a, a good writer. I don't have education there, but I know one it is. So I got in with Dick Latimer, worked for uh, Bonsib Advertising Agency in in Indiana, mm-hmm. and I, I'd gotten to know Dick, and I said, "I want I go go talk to Dick. He's the guy who can do this for you, and I'll work with him on it. You know, as far as the magazine, but he's who you want." And he got the job. Well, but while I was there anyway, and talking to them, 
Bob Kelly, who was the marketing director, he says, I, I had, and I was looking for a little chance to get away from the magazine to make more money. Well, and, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. Like you were talking about that, like the snowballing and how you're starting to meet some of these bigger names that people yeah. listening to this would probably start yeah. to know. Like, so what's the timeline here that we're looking at as far as you starting to take over this, uh, this pub, this you know, general manager at this publishing company for this archery magazine, rolling into the, this this situation where you're you're going to to bear archery. Like, you know, what what transpired in that time as far okay. as okay. When I got out of the navy looking for a job, I sold cars temporarily. I was also had applications in the airlines because I was a qualified pilot, and uh, but that was not a good occupation at the time. Couldn't get in them, so I had to do something, make a living, pay my bills. So uh, along came. Paul Tapp was the guy that told me to go to the magazine, to mm-hmm. go to Dunweb. And timeline, this was quick. Okay. I got out of the Navy in March of 64. I went to work for Dunweb about June of 64 and with the magazine, got introduced to what it all was. And then in middle, uh, late 65, is when I finally became the general manager. But the truth of it was, the other guy was only there half the time. But I was officially named the general manager at that point of the magazine. But in the, me- in the middle of this, I won the national. Right. Just, so, uh, so like, a lot had, had snowballed in a short amount of time. I mean, yeah. you jumped into a position where this was a – I'm assuming this was the, the biggest archery magazine in the country, right? If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their 1-2 planting system. The system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at vitalizedseed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Radix Hunting was founded on premium grade trail cameras and continues striving to produce the best cellular and conventional trail cameras on the market today. The Gen 600 is a second generation camera from the Gen series line. With premium video and audio recording capabilities, this product has become well respected as the HD video trail camera. In addition to the Gen series cameras, their M-Core cellular camera has all the features of a quality cell camera at an affordable price. Along with their cameras, they offer stick and pick trail camera accessories to allow you to set your cameras just right. You can find it all at RadixHunting.com and be sure to follow Radix Hunting on Instagram and Facebook. Want to check out Radix cameras in person? Stop in at Little Mountain Outfitters in Richland, Pennsylvania, and have a peek. Now, back to the ship. No, it was not. Okay. There was one called uh, Archery. That was the official publication of the National Field Archery Association. Mm. And their membership is about five times the size of the National Archery Association. Because mm. the National Archery Association was more collegiate, college, amateur, that was their focus. Whereas the uh, archery magazine, Roy Hoff was running, owned it. They were f- they were focused more on field archery, which is far more temper uh, popular. Field archery had walk up targets, 
and the, the range was from 20 feet to 80 yards, mm-hmm. and you shot 14 different distances on a one-half of a round. And with the National Archery Association, you had a five-color face sitting out there of different sizes, depending upon how far you were away from it. So there's really two kinds of competition, and it's still kind of a little bit like that. The uh, collegiate and, and high school and stuff shoot that color target, five-color target, mm-hmm. while and now they shoot mostly 3D, but the, because the used to be shooting at a target, black and white target on a bale. And so evolution being what it is, you know, things change all the time, and that was another change. But we were the, definitely the minority magazine. But the other thing we had in our favor, the real aficionados, the real dedicated traditionalists was us. Okay. We had that following, and we had that kind of readership. Okay. And, and Okay, and that's the kind of articles we published, who won the world championship, and so then who won the national championship, who won the college championship, and that sort of thing. And so uh, our audience was a little bit different and not as large, but very influential. Okay. The people that were running the show was who we more or less catered to and published for. That's right, and you kind of hinted at that when you brought up Mr. Hoyt and Mr. Yeah. Bear and stuff like that. So, well, well, yeah, they were advertisers, and so I got to know them individually at different times, different ways, and it all just happened to fall in place. You know, it just there it was, and right. and and again, I saw, and I don't want any of this to sound braggadocious. That's embarrassing, but I can say this: I guarantee, in circle of any sport. The guy that can do it better gets more attention. Right. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And I always, my statement always in archery, the guy who can hit the middle the most times is going to get the most attention. Right. And well, I know how to do that. And mm-hmm. so I got a lot of attention early. And nationally advanced, and I got, and even the, our, my, our competing magazine did an article on me. Okay. Okay, so, so it just all fell into place. I don't even know how to account for it. But then back to Bear Archery Company and talking to them, Kelly said he had a couple sales jobs open, and he says, I want you in the company. That was what it amounted to. And I didn't want to do the editorial thing on the books. And so I made a, I made a agreement with them, and I took a territory, Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana, three-state territory, that I started in in November of 1967. So now this whole, this whole picture took f- place from 64 to 67, Shooting, winning, opening doors, talking. And yeah, that sounds I, like fifth gear wide open. Mm-hmm. Is that the <laughs> so, uh, is that the three years where you won the two national championships during that period of time? Uh, well, I only won the one. I only ever won one national championship. Oh, okay. I I got second. I got a record there. I and I please. I'm not trying to be smart aleck here. I just don't even remember for sure, but. I the year the year I won it the following year I got third. Okay. And then I didn't attempt for a couple of years. I was busy doing business and believe it or not, obviously you could get the picture. Just shooting a bow and arrow wasn't. It did certain things for me, but I had more important things to do. And I was at an event. My manufacturers were there. My paychecks were there, so to speak. My ads. So I. I didn't pay enough attention to shooting, but enough to get in. Right. And so 
And then I, oh, let's see, I cannot forget the years. Then I went, I went in and out of shooting. I would appear at some of these things, but I was, I was well enough long. I could still get in, a, in frequently in the top three. Tell me about the competition at that time. Like, what was it like? Was it the same people and over, over and over again that you were, you'd be facing in, at the top end? Well, to some extent, but there's pretty good turnover because okay. somebody's always getting better and coming along. But like, for instance, and it's classifications. Now, what I'm talking about when I wanted it was the highest classification, not a handicap division down in third or fourth division or whatnot. I was at the top of it. And so, so but there was others below us. But when we went to Watkin Glen in 65, I wanted, there was 880 shooters there. Okay. But I was only directly competing with about 60 that were the highest echelon. Mm-hmm. And then there was other people there of the 80s, so I really only had a field of 60 people to beat or whatever. I think it was 60-something. I don't remember. but was, And some of those people I encountered from time to time along the way because they were good archers and they were trying to win. And, uh, well, another example, there was all kinds of – and then there was indoor archery as well as outdoor archery. Mm-hmm. And Ben Pearson, another large manufacturer at the time, and they had a – uh, a tournament called the Ben Pearson Open where they rented Cobo Hall in Detroit, okay? And so um, each, and they had competition, they individual and they had team competition. So I took a team of three other guys and me and I was a captain for Pennsylvania and we went to Cobo Hall and we won it. And so one of the guys that was at that event was a guy I'd encountered many, many times and I didn't care for him a hell of a lot. He's from Al Muller from Minneapolis. Well, at any rate, I want to tell you, and this may be, I'm just going to tell you a little story. This may not want to put in your thing. But <laughs> I, I, Al Muller was a screwy guy, and I knew I'd get in his brain a lot of ways. And I did something that was almost sounds ridiculous. I took a light switch and a drilled hole that was in the bowl to put a quiver on it. Mm-hmm. I put I screwed that light switch in there, and every time I'd go up the line, I'd move the switch. And if you if you could be challenged for illegal competition, you paid an event, you paid an amount, and they would inspect your equipment. Made a total ass out of him. <laughs> we beat him. He was second. His team was second. He wanted to win it. He didn't. And so he paid the 50 bucks to have my bow examined, and he was a laughing stock. It was a blank switch. Mm-hmm. Didn't do a damn thing. He thought I had some kind of magic going on, mm-hmm. that I had it wired somehow, or I was using to aim with, but it was tied to nothing. <laughs> so, so were you shooting a Hoyt at that time, or were you shooting a Fred? No, I was shooting Fred a bear Dan. then, because when I, when I went to, when I left the magazine and went to Bear Archer Company, I had their equipment then in competition exclusively. That was mm-hmm. part of my contract. Because they do little things like, and by then I'd left the amateur division, joined the Professional Archer Association, and any check I could win, they'd match it for me. Mm-hmm. And so, so I kept shooting their equipment and wearing their jacket and their cap and that kind sure. of stuff. And so, well, that's just kind of the sequence now. Where we get up to here in 1967, I went to work for Bear. Then I, I worked for them in Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana in 68. And at 69, 
the sales manager of the territory for the company in North, North, well, the mixed states, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Minnesota, yeah, right. North Dakota, South Dakota, Illinois, Iowa. He was going in to become the sales manager. His territory was open. Well, I would, they also were running a contest that I had got the check for. And so they said, they took, again, Bob Kelly, back to Bob. By now, mm-hmm. he, he was the president now of the company. He says, you're going to take that job in Wisconsin. Well, I like that because of hunting. That was a place to be, baby. Mm-hmm. I was home. <laughs> so <laughs> so I went there and, see, I, I went there and, in the end of 67. I was there 68 and 69. That's only two years. But, again, things are rolling along. Now we got to back up a little bit. It, when I was the general manager of Archie World, mm-hmm. we had a technical editor that wrote articles for us monthly. But he was a very experienced bow hunter. I, I mean, bow builder. Okay. He knew how to make bows. And he had made bows at one world championships. His name was Tom Jennings. Mm, mm. So, uh, I had a good association with Tom, and so along came the patent on the compound bow, and I was still with the magazine then, and Hollis Allen in Missouri patented, and he uh, he called me and wanted to, he tried to sell his idea to the whole industry, and nobody bought it. They wouldn't take it. So he called me at the magazine and said he wanted to run an article. I, I mean, I said, well, we sell ads. We can do that. No, no, I want an article on my bow. I said, well, I, you're going to have to let that up to me. Uh, you know, we're going to have to test the bow. So eventually he sent me a bow. I sent it to Tom Jenny. Tom did the testing on it, called back and said, we got something here that we really – because we – there was another thing going on off this. We were trying to get higher-velocity equipment to be – have a higher kill rate because there was a lot of now. There's a whole other thing that was happening in the industry, a lot of fear because there was heavy, there was heavy lobbying to discontinue bonding in a number of states, including Pennsylvania. Right. Because of the weapon not being lethal, people were finding deer out there with arrows sticking in them. So I knew the answer to that was get a faster bow arrow. Right. Well, so that was the. The really thing that kicked my, me and, and Tom, and we said we could make it go faster. We were, and Tom was a flight shooter, too. And the better you can build a bow, the further they'll shoot an arrow. And he won the national championship a number of times. I see. He won the world championship because he was as much interested in speed as I was. Okay. So when this come along, we quickly got together on it. So then, and so I quit Bear at the end of 69. Okay, and then... They, they, everybody thought I was crazy. I was a Midwest sales manager with the biggest company and doing okay, but I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So I hooked up with Tom, and then we got a license from Alan. We did run an article on it. Tom wrote it, and we run the article on it. And we had been talking to Alan, Hollis Allen. By that time, we acquired a license. And then we put together Jenny Compound. Boom, we didn't have any money. We all had an idea. Right. And so we started building compound bows. And when I quit Bear, I formed a sales group of my own called Sherwood Shop Shock Representatives Incorporated. By now, I had networked through the industry, and it was every door was open, so to speak. 
my name was recognized, I was recognized, I could knock on anybody's door to try to sell their equipment. And so, and I knew who was the best and who wasn't the best, and so I, one at a time, I talked to him about representing him some way, because they, well, I put together a sales force called Manufacturers Reps, and I picked up a number of lines. I only wanted about six or seven, but I wanted the best sellers, the best equipment. So, th so this, that's how I made a living while we were putting things together with a compound bow. I was selling equipment mm -hmm. of various manufacturers. And then I was also involved with the development of a number of things along the way. And a thing called a release aid, I was in the middle of that. And so, and we had several guys, and a guy by the name of Pete Shapley, big name, mm -hmm. owns Professor um, Pete Shapley as precision shooting equipment. Yep. That was really Pete Shapley equipment. Right. But an uh, advertising agent said, you got to take your name off of it. I always told Pete he made a mistake. He shouldn't have. He's a friend. I know him. I said, you should have let it. Pete Shepley instead of precision shooting equipment because we're a very personal sport, very small. It's better to know somebody than to be a technical like that. So at any rate, but it is precision, but the same guy. I often wondered that. I never heard some. That's the first time anybody sold that. I always thought that PSE, Pete Shepley, that's, that stood for that. That's what I yeah, thought. Yeah, it is. It was. And he changed it. And the guy, his sales manager at the time was George Chapman, another good friend. And he didn't want to, he wanted to stay Pete Shepley too. But, well, anyway, it was changed. But, but before Pete was all of that, he was working as an engineer for a plastic company in southern Illinois. And I bumped into Pete, got to know him like everybody else. And by now, he, he was in the plastic company. He could cast past plastic things. So he cast a hand grip with a pin through it for a release aid. And is this all at the same time that you're going through the process of building, like did the release aid and the compound bow kind of come to fruition around the same time? Yeah, they did. They kind of fit each other. Right. Because a compound bow has got an axle, axle of 40-some inches where regular bows were 66. Right. So the string angle was such that you're finishing it off, but with a shorter bow... It was almost compulsory to hold to do it different. You're getting pinched on it, and you're getting fingers squeezed in on the arrow, so forth. So the crossbow guys, here we go again, uh, a guy by the name of Gilbert from Maryland was a champion in a crossbow at that time. There was always a division for them, and he was a, he was putting a loop on the string, and and of course, short bows are crossbows are very little, you know, short. And so, I immediately stole his idea. And at one point in time, and it never stuck. And I said, "Okay, I wish it had." I had I had broadcast that loop so much, so much. Many dealers were calling it the Sherwood loop, but it never stuck. But because it's just a piece of string. And then when Pete Shepley became Pete Shepley, guess what? He put it on every one of his bows. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do it for the length of the thing, and now sure. they're now they're down to this. What's your? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. some of them now. Like I have a long axle axle yeah. bow; it's considered mine's thirty six inches, yeah. and that's considered long. A lot long, of the guys right. are shooting twenty eight to thirty inch axle axle bows nowadays. Well, at any rate, Pete was one of the guys I knocked on his door, and he he made some veins, plastic veins, and I sold some of them, and I sold these, and he made the the hand grip. 
cast plastic for release aids, and so I, I hit the road selling everything that was objectionable. A compound bow that every association didn't want anything to do with. Release aids that they said wasn't legal, it wasn't your fingers, just all kinds of stuff. So we had a long road to, we had a lot of work to do. Well, tell me a little bit more about that because, you know, I, I feel like what you're describing is yeah. kind of where we're at today in the world of crossbows. Like there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of pushback and there's a lot of issues and, uh, or, or as, as far as whether or not it should be considered yeah. part of the archer community. And it was the same thing in my mind and the way I would view it with it compounds is. at that it time. It is. And well, a traditionalist, this guy, he can be anybody at any level in life. So the traditionals that traditionalists I faced to bring on what I brought on is now the traditionalist. Right. So you're one step away from that, okay? So you're going to get the same argument. You will. And and we both know that the crossbow was definitely illegal equipment in a lot of states, not just that couldn't use it, mm-hmm. including Pennsylvania. Right. Okay? Now, also, the compound bow was illegal in Pennsylvania, and I'm peddling it. Well, I had a dog and pony show that I took out forever, or I had a, cro- um, a chronograph and a... And we would illustrate on a screen uh, trajectory uh, uh, the, more than that the stored energy okay. and how you what amounts to a, and what stored energy how to store energy and how you can maximize that and i could prove that with the draw force curve on a compound bow because when you first pull it back it peaks up goes high on a graph now and back down Okay, and then you hit a spot where it won't go any further because the wheels are ready. Now, they call it a wheel bow, but it's not really a wheel. It's a cam, you know. Right. It's axle off-center. Therefore, it's a cam, not a wheel. But we will let anybody call it a wheel bow if they want it, but that was okay with us. We didn't have to explain to them what we were doing. So, so well, Pennsylvania Game Commission was one of these. I, I did thousands, hundreds. I shouldn't say thousands. Thousands of people, but hundreds of seminars around the whole United States with my dog and pony show. It was a good one. And we put up $500 to anybody could bring any bow in and shoot it faster than my compound bow. Mm-hmm. And then they'd think there was always going to be a gimme, but guess what I did? I wrote the program so I could do any damn thing I wanted to do, and right. I did. I said, uh, you bring your bow and your arrow, and I'm going I'm to use your arrow. And I ain't going to shoot the bow, you're going to shoot it. I'm just going to set up the chronograph, and I'll back away so that, you know, you shoot your bow through the chronograph. I'll sit over in a chair and watch, and you shoot my bow through the chronograph. Of course, if they could beat me, we got 500 bucks. Nobody could come close. Right. It was an unfair test, but it worked. And that was a Jennings bow. Yes, it was. And then, well, the game commission at the time, we were – I was – in association with the game commission believe it or not at one point in time i actually was one of the instructors up at brockway in the archery division for the game commission for their officers but this was later on but i'd gotten to know like always through these steps i was taking with the game commission i got to know some people there and i wasn't cheating anybody or doing anything so i was friend made friends and so uh and, and i had a a guy from northwestern Pennsylvania that at the time was a state representative 
who was a bow hunter. Same old thing. And so he was willing to sponsor the bill. And so we got him to put the bill in to change it officially. But, and he was a good politician, a nice guy, but Sherwood Shock was knocking on doors in Parisburg. And so, and went to the game commission with my dog and pony show, and I had votes coming my way. I knew I did. All I had to do was get to the table, and so it did. And then uh, on the, I'm going to say the date, but I don't, I know it was the last week in October mm. of 1972, the compound bow became legal in the state of Pennsylvania with. In 1972? Yeah, it was during the season. The season see. was open, and and they approved it right at the last week of the season. Wow. Then the season only went till the end of October. Right. And from then on, boy, boy you know, I'm going to tell you what, I immediately had 10,000 post sales. So, it, I mean. It, I had them on paper just waiting to get approval. I would have expected that, too, yeah. just because there had to be a lot of interest in that. Go back a little bit and tell me a little bit more. What was it like going through that process with Tom Jennings and everybody that had part in that in developing material processing to get to that final product that first time that you you got that product and said we've got something well here. i'll tell you what that that was a it's it's a, a backyard garage deal we didn't know what we were doing we just knew what we could do and we were trying to develop things that we went along we kept hunting for ways to do things and how to improve it we knew that this cam was a secret Tom knew how to build laminated limb bows. When Hollis Allen sent the bow to me originally that we tested, it had a half round aluminum limb on it. His bay, he was a tinsmith, so that's all he knew how to do. So he worked with metal. Mm -hmm. Well, Tom Jennings knew how to build bows, so all he did was take one look at this bow, and he knew right away you put a laminated limb on it and make it work, and we did that. And so that was the thing. Initially, it was a, had a wooden a glass laminated limb on, just like regular bows had. It was no, that was before the uh, composites and stuff like that. And so, and we had to study everything. We had to figure out how to cut a slot in the limb without it breaking and just a whole series of things. How many people were involved? Hundreds. Right. We had people working with us, other people interested, buddies that were in the archery club. We just had something to everything. Right. And I never stopped snooping and looking and willing to listen to anybody that, that had an idea that was any good. Uh, and I got a lot of from from people. You know, we pieced it together. And then Tom, of course, Tom was a real mechanic. Mm. He was a special guy. Kind of fix he, everything but a broken heart kind of deal. Well, <laughs> well, he's a, yeah. Well, Tom was a, he had, he lived in, his business was in California, Burbank, California. Okay. That's where it was. And, of course, he had an archery shop there. When he got out of the Air Force in, right after World War II, he took a contract job with, uh, in Greenland to do uh, tinsmith work. He happened to be that kind of guy, too, up there. Well, he used that money. He did it on purpose, and he gave him a contract. He came over with his money and bought Smithwick Citation Archery Shop. as a guy he worked for when he was a kid. And he knew that, and this guy basically told him how to make bows, and Tom bought Smithwick's. So the, the first bows that Tom made were called Smithwick's Citation, but Tom made them. Was that a compound bow? No. That was a, 
He, he made recurves, damn good ones, mm -hmm. really good ones. And so, but he had this knowledge of how to work with these glues and laminates, okay. And Gordon Glass was had a factory not far from him. He could tap in with them to try and get pieces of plastic to work with and, well, everything. And there was just so many people had some touch in it. It's just hard to say, you know. Yeah, right, right. So uh, we were we were really in the dark most of the time. We just said, "Well, okay, let's try this. Let's try this." And we had failures. And then we built a bow testing machine to, uh, that would dry fire the bow, but not dry fire because you don't want to do that; it'll break. Right. But we put a we put a sleeve or a rod on it, and we put a weight on it the size of an arrow. So that when every time we desisted and we slid that weight up the rod right. to, into a rubber bumper, so we didn't break anything. Well, we're going to break things. We did. That's what we built it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes bows would come apart in 10,000 shots, some in 2,000 shots, some in 100,000 shots. Mm -hmm. Just depend upon, we're hunting for ways they didn't break and still performed. Right. And so, and there was no computers and no Google other than, so... We just hunted for it and hunted for it. And then we had so many people step up, and we were able to hire some people that had knowledge about certain things and just a piece of everybody. But the Jenny's compound bow, there was four principals. Tom, a guy by the name of John Williamson, who had the money, a guy by the name of Gary Booker, who was a hell of a machinist, and an ex-Marine, and me. That's that was, We were the... We were the motor that had to make this thing work, and we and we did it, and that's how we. And finally, we came around. The bows got better all the time, but at first they weren't so good, and we had really reduced our breakage. And uh, uh, we stopped making. Eventually, we went to composite limbs, as you know, that's what's used now. But uh, the step along the way moved off of aluminum. Right. Well, first, believe it or not, the first risers we had were wooden okay. on compound bows. They were. And they were uh, impregnated wood, okay? And so there was a wood bow for that. And then we started casting aluminum risers. Well, that was a really heavy bow. Right, that's what and, I was thinking. Yeah, and well, we just had to do something. Then we went to titanium eventually. But now here comes Tom again. Dear Tom, my love, my wonderful friend. <laughs> he, was a, he was a tough guy, and he was hard as a nail, and he was rough as a... You know, he was not fine sandpaper. Mm. So, Tom wanted them to be heavy. He says, these are men, they're masculine. They want it to be heavy. I know, they don't want it to be heavy. So we, but we outvoted him. There was three of us went the other way. The other two guys really weren't a lot involved in the, Tom and I were doing the bow. They were doing everything I knew to make the bow happen. And and John Williamson had the money to, uh, initially, so we had to go sell some stuff to get enough money to keep advancing, and we did that. So, And when you're starting a new product, that they call that vertical in manufacturing, if you're not familiar with the term. Vertical means you've got to do everything yourself. You can't subcontract. Nobody knows how. And then you need equipment to do that with. That's vertical. And, boy, that... Sure, would share, uh, share with Mitchell about the, uh, the, the testing you had to do for the insurance companies. On the if, when the bow broke, so that some that the, the particles went away from the individual that was shooting it. Well, I don't remember which one, but I know we did it. Well, part of my dog and pony show was that 
take away the fear, I take a boat of full grow and have a guy sit there and cut the string. Wow. Okay. Not bad as you think. Listen, all the force goes away, not right. towards. Everything just went out there. And mostly it just collapsed. And if you break it, and we did this on the machine, we pull it back till I had no choice, break the limb, it's a soft collapse. It doesn't come apart violently. Right. Uh, by nature of the thing. See, and the weight that's on it. So that's, I guess that's what you're talking mm -hmm. about. That's what we did. Mm -hmm. So, and that was part of this demo I did. And I did this demo all over the country at every major sports show and every archery show and national championships. I wasn't there to shoot. I did shoot sometimes, but I was trying to get on stage to sell, to do our thing. He and was the celebrity at the, at the sports shows. You betcha. Yeah, to some extent. <laughs> I was known, you know, and yeah. that's what, now, in that you, industry. Now, did you ever compete with compounds? Yes. Okay. Tell me about that. Well, let's think about it a minute. I did. I switched over to the compound bowl entirely in 1970. And I'll tell you a story there. Okay, I was a member of the Professional Archer Association, and they're group of wonderful thinkers immediately outlawed the compound bone competition. They not only did that, but they, their, their code of ethics, any PAA member who was seen using a compound bow would be just thrown out of the PAA. Wow. I was the first one. I went to Vegas. I shot in the open with a compound bow and I was thrown out of the PAA. I was the only guy who was ever ejected on the code of ethics and I was the one, <laughs> but that's okay with me. I, I do really. I was, I was right. Who was right? And who they don't even exist anymore. Right. And look, and the compound bow took over the industry. It absolutely. They were didn't. just be. They were too far behind. See, traditionalists, and so. Well, one thing I never understand, and this is a whole other avenue of conversation, but like traditional mindset. I was just listening to an episode of talking about where is the line with traditional archery because you know traditional archery yeah, means what's traditional yeah. exactly because you know traditional a lot of people mean you know no no clicker for a subconscious release nothing like that no no form of release aid and and yet you know you can go back in history and there's there's different things where you know the I guess people, you know, they, they time the, the shot as far as, you know, when, when your, your finger would flip off the, the riser, that's a, a time shot or, or a thumb ring, you know, Mongolians would use thumb rings and stuff like that. So like, where's the line of what's traditional in, in archery? And I, I never really, I always struggled with that because to me, if you're shooting, um, oh, the same thing with, uh, aiming concepts with a, a bare bow. You know, whether you're, um, quote-unquote, instinct, or right. are you gap shooting, or, you know. Yeah, it's not a fixed thing. It's a moving line all the time. Right. And so it's it's impossible to pin down. And people that were fighting me tooth and nail now do that exactly thing, and they're turned around to fight the con crossbow. Right. I I can't explain it. I, I don't know how we can't. Uh, it's just human nature, I guess, and. I think it is. Anytime there's, some, anytime there's something new, I mean, somebody's got to be... Change you know, comes hard. Right? Right. Change, change does come hard, especially yeah, yeah. when you get you, you get set in your ways. It, it's a it's a like a purity thing, I guess, of, or, or you know, not straying away. But the only thing that stays constant is everything changes. It's change. Mm -hmm. And those very guys that are trying to make it stay constant, those very guys, what there's only one thing in the world that's constant. 
change. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So there. So where do you draw this line? There's no line. Mm-hmm. It depends on how blockaded they are, how stubborn they are, and and having said that, one time really local here, and I was a pro by this time. I went down to Coatesville somewhere with a couple of my buddies, archery club guys. We went down there to enter a tournament that was taking place. They wouldn't let me compete. They said we don't want pros in here. Mm. And I think I think I know what that was about. The guy that was doing all the talking was their best shooter, and you know he's going to get his butt kicked. <laughs> and he didn't want that guy on the course. That was me. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Make sure you guys keep your eyes open for part two with Sherwood Shock. There's a lot more of his stories to come, a lot more of the knowledge of the compound bow, and uh, stories of, of some big names from, from Pete Shepley to Ted Nugent. So make sure you guys keep your eyes peeled. I was, uh, again, so thankful to have him, and I'm really looking forward to bringing part two to you in a few weeks. So have a good week, and take care. <laughs>